Welcome to Journey in the Word with Pastor Randy Mosher of Calvary Chapel, the Cumberland Valley. We are located in Hagerstown, Maryland. Please join us every weekday as our pastor takes us verse by verse through a book of the Bible. Today, we're picking up in the Gospel of Luke, where the writer emphasizes the ministry that Jesus had to the poor and hurting and our need for a Savior. All of these being validated by the Old Testament prophecies about Christ. So if you're able, grab your Bibles and join us as we continue our journey in the Word. Yeah, I got to tell you, when I began this journey to, to, to this work today that's Calvary Chapel here in, in, in Hagerstown, you know, when, when this first started, I, I had no understanding of what ministry was about. I had no understanding of what it was to be a pastor. And if you would have looked at me and said, one day you're going to be a pastor, I would have laughed at you. I'm a soldier. I was a soldier. And when I got out, I was still going to be connected to things that soldiers were still connected to. I'd, I'd, I'd work in a field that was somewhat connected. But to do this, when God called me to this, it was, you know, my flesh said, how can I do this? Me? How do I do this? The Lord said, do you trust me? And my answer is yes, then obey me. Maybe he's saying that to you today. Do you trust me enough to obey me? Whether it's something that he's shown you in his word or it's a calling he's placed on your life, do you trust me enough to obey me? You know, that truly is where we need to be as it reflects not just our trust in God, but but it really also reflects our love for him. Jesus said in John 14, 15, if you love me, do what you want. No, he didn't say that. He said, if you love me, keep my commandments. Do what I'm asking of you is what he's saying. If you love me, you'll do that. And so I believe that we need to have the heart of Jesus in this, and he demonstrates it for us. You know, we're going to talk about this in a little bit, but it's not just what Jesus says. It's what Jesus does. Jesus said things to us that he wants us to follow, but he also demonstrated those things in his life as well. And, and he did this for us. He's showing us the love of the Father by obeying the Father. And now he says, do as I've done. See? So the simplest answer of all is that Jesus submitted to John's baptism simply because God the Father had asked it of him. And yet there's some very practical reasons for his doing this as well. First, he's doing it to affirm John's ministry. By joining the masses and submitting to John's baptism, he was showing approval of what John was doing. By his willingness to submit to John's baptism, Jesus was saying to the watching world that John's ministry was valid, that the things he was pointing to, the things that his ministry were about, they were valid. And like the law, Jesus was now standing there as the fulfillment of these things, even as he participated in it. Second, he was identifying with us. I particularly like this aspect. He was identifying with us. Remember, Scripture tells us that Jesus is our great high priest. Uh, The book of Hebrews is all about that. Jesus is our great high priest. And in the Old Testament, the priest always participated in the ceremonies and the rituals in ways that signified that he was identifying with the people that he ministered to and on behalf of. And as such, our true high priest, Jesus identified with us by participating in John's baptism, just as Hebrews 2.17 tells us he would. Hebrews 2.17 says, Therefore, in all things, 
He had to be made like his brethren that he might be a merciful and faithful high priest in the things pertaining to God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. Jesus did this because he was identifying with us. You know, as a former army officer, one of the things that I really relate to this on because it was important, it was drilled into my head, is that you didn't ask soldiers to do something that you were not willing to do yourself. In fact, by doing it yourself, you were demonstrating for your soldiers the fact that you were doing these things. And so here we see Jesus doing that just for us. A third, he was symbolically demonstrating the ultimate ministry that he would perform for us. Keep in mind that ultimately baptism would become a a symbolic picture. You and I today relate to this picture, but it was a symbolic picture of the death, burial, and resurrection that redeems us of what Jesus would do. So by participating in baptism, Jesus was symbolically foreshadowing his submission to these coming events in his life personally. He would die. He would be buried. He would be resurrected. That baptism speaks, as we talked weeks ago, of those very things. As you go down into the water, it signifies going into death, into the grave with Jesus. He would be buried. When you're covered with that water, it's symbolically representing that that burial. And then as you you rise, that you're being resurrected to new life. And so Jesus was demonstrating of what he would do. He was doing it in, in anticipation of what's coming. We do it now in the anticipation of its fulfillment and that picture of what was done for us and what's happened to us. And fourth, and possibly most importantly, he was being consecrated for his ministry as high priest. Now look, if you know the Old Testament and what it required of the high priest, you know that the book of Exodus requires that in his consecration, his consecration for ministry, the high priest was both washed with water and he was anointed with oil. Both. And in this moment, as Jesus stood on the precipice of his ministry uh, beginning and, and by submitting to baptism, Jesus, our high priest, was being washed with water through John's baptism, and he was being anointed with oil as the Spirit descended upon him. As Matthew, Mark, and now Luke describe the same thing happening as, as Mark fully describes, here's how Mark says it. It says in Mark chapter 1 and verse 10 and 11, Mark chapter 1 verse 10, and immediately coming up from the water, he saw the heavens parting and the Spirit descending upon him like a dove. Then a voice came from heaven, you are my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. Jesus, our high priest, he descends into the water where he was washed. And as he rises from the water, the oil is now being applied as the Spirit descends upon him. And with the confirmation of the Father upon him, this is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. Jesus now formally begins his high priestly ministry for all of us. And by the way, for those who question the triune nature of God, what I mean by that is the Trinity. There are people who also teach that there is no Trinity because they can't find the word in Scripture. Well, number one, because you can't find the word in Scripture does not mean that it's invalid. It means we've given a word to a concept that exists in the Scriptures. And, and, and there are those who believe that there is no triune nature of God, but right here it is on full display for us. God in the flesh, submitting as the Son. 
Jesus, God in the flesh submitting, God in the spirit descending, God in the Father confirming, all three members of the Trinity present and active in this moment at the start of Jesus' ministry. Not three gods, but three in one. Three persons making up the one of the Trinity, of God himself. All three present. But before we move on, I want you to note one other really important thing Jesus is modeling for us at his physical baptism. Look again at verse 21. We're going back now to the book of Luke chapter 3. Look at verse 21 and 22 again. He says, when all the people were baptized, it came to pass that Jesus also was baptized. And while he prayed, the heaven was opened. And the Holy Spirit descended in bodily form like a dove upon him. If you like to mark your Bibles, mark that phrase. And the Holy Spirit descended in bodily form like a dove upon him. And a voice came from heaven which said, You are my beloved Son. In you I am well pleased. I want you to note this. Jesus' baptism was about more than just baptism with water. But it also involved his baptism with the Spirit. Yeah, Jesus, the, the one who John said was coming to baptize men and women with the Holy Spirit and with fire, was himself in this moment baptized with the Holy Spirit that day. Now, that's an interesting turn of events, because why would Jesus possibly need to be baptized with the Spirit? Why? I mean, after all, he's God in the flesh. And as God in the flesh, as such, the Spirit already dwells in him, since he and the Spirit are really one. So why would it be necessary for the Spirit to descend upon him in this moment? I would suggest that it happened for the same reasons that he underwent water baptism. As our high priest, Jesus was being consecrated for ministry. And as mentioned already, the consecration ceremony for the high priest in the Old Testament law included being washed with water, but it also included being anointed with oil. And both of these things were necessary for before the priest could even begin his ministry. And so too, Jesus is symbolically submitting to the same things before he assumes his priestly duties. He's been washed with the water as he submitted to baptism, but now... He's being anointed with the most divine oil of all, the oil of the Holy Spirit. And now he's officially ready to begin his high priestly ministry. In fact, in a verse or two later after this, it even tells us, and now as he began his ministry, this was the moment when Jesus now steps out into his ministry. And remember, his ministry and his first coming that he was fulfilling was that of high priest. And his second coming, he's going to come and fulfill his ministry as king. It's not that he's not a king already, he is, but he will physically come and execute that ministry as well. That's why the Jews got it all confused. They were looking for their Messiah to come as a king like David. They weren't looking for the high priest who would also be the sacrifice of himself in those things. But Jesus is following the pattern. He's following the law, just like the high priest was anointed with oil, washed with water, anointed with oil before he went out to fulfill his ministry. Jesus, now as high priest, is doing that as well. But beyond these symbolic meanings associated with all of this, Jesus is doing something else. 
He's doing something practical and, and I think really important for us as believers because what he's doing is he's modeling the relationship that he wants all of us to submit to with the Holy Spirit. Now, if you've been here a while, you've heard me teach about the three relationships that Scripture indicates that we as believers are to enjoy with God's Spirit, relationships that in many ways have been ignored and even rejected in some cases by Christians. These relations have largely been ignored and even rejected because of misunderstandings of what the Scriptures teach on this important issue and because of the abuses a lot of people have seen associated with it. In particular, there's a lot of ignorance that has led to bad teachings and unwarranted concerns with with scriptural concept referred to as the baptism of the Holy Spirit. And sadly, that ignorance has led to a lot of wrong views on both sides of this biblical issue. For example, some people believe and teach that you don't have the Holy Spirit until you've been baptized by the Spirit through a second experience after accepting Christ. And they draw that idea from the biblical account of Pentecost, teaching that you have to come to saving faith in Christ first, and then you need to go and tarry for a period of time after that, waiting for the Spirit to fall upon you in a second experience. Some even teach that you're not really saved until you have that second experience. Oh, you may have placed your faith in Christ, but you're not really saved until that happens. Not all teach that, but some. At the same time, there are those on the opposite side of the issue that teach that there's no other relationship that exists with this Spirit other than the one that's established when you placed your faith in Jesus. They suggest that you've been given the full measure of God's Spirit at that time and that there's nothing else to look for, nothing other to seek after, no other relationship that you should pursue to have with the Spirit. You have it all. It's done. So, which view is correct? How do we discern truth about this matter? Well, we discern truth by doing what we're always called to do, by looking at Jesus Christ and what he has said to us and to the example he has set for us in his own life. So let's begin by looking at what Jesus has specifically said to us about this issue. Here's what he said. If you search the scriptures, you'll find that Jesus clearly defined three unique relationships that the Spirit wants to have with us. And these relationships are defined by three prepositions, which he uses in speaking about the Spirit's interaction with us. (coughs) Excuse me. And just before departing in the earth, Jesus met with his his disciples at the Last Supper, and he made the following promise to them. Turn with me, if you will, to John chapter 14. John chapter 14. We're going to go to verse 16. John chapter 14 and verse 16. John chapter 14 and verse 16. This is at the Last Supper. Jesus is giving these final instructions, these final comments to his disciples, knowing that his time was drawing near. John chapter 14, verses 16 and 17. It says this, John 14, verse 16, And I will pray the Father, and he will give you another helper, that he might, might abide with you forever. The Spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him, but you know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. In this statement, Jesus is telling them that he's not going to leave them alone. In fact, he's promising that even though he's going, he's not going to leave the disciples alone, but that he's going to send a helper, a helper that they they already knew in the person of the Holy Spirit. 
Now, you want to note some key words, some important prepositions that Jesus uses, uses this, there you go, uses, you can tell I preached already this morning, in verse 17, in regard to the Spirit. If you like to mark your Bibles, you'll want to underline two specific words in verse 17. The word with, when he says, for he dwells with you, underline with, and the word in, because he says he'll be in you, with and in. Now, he specifically tells them that the Spirit who already dwells with them through their belief will form a new relationship in which he will be in them. Now, in the Greek, the preposition with is the word para, and it defines a relationship with the disciples that they already knew. They knew the Spirit had been with them as he had been with all of God's people throughout the ages. They knew that he'd always been there revealing God to men and women and leading them to God. They knew also that he'd been there revealing God's will and empowering men and women to do God's will. But then Jesus adds something new, a a second preposition that defined a different kind of relationship with the Spirit, which they did not yet fully understand or appreciate, a relationship of the Spirit reflected by Jesus' use of the the word in. In It's the Greek preposition en. And en literally translates as in in the English, and, and thus here Jesus uses it to reflect the relation of the Spirit in them. The idea being that he will literally take up residence and dwell within them. Another way we would say it is tabernacle with them, to dwell within. And you see, this was something new to the disciples. Because although they knew of the Spirit's relationship with them, they didn't fully comprehend the idea of the Spirit taking up residence in them, at least not in the permanent sense with which Jesus is speaking here. They knew of the Spirit empowering the great men and women of God through the Old Testament age, but Jesus was referring to something far more, a permanent residency of the Spirit in them. You know, up until this point, God would give the Spirit in measure for specific purposes, for specific things, for a specific period of time to men and women in the Old Testament, but but not in this sense of literal dwelling continually. Oh, there were some exceptions to that. Maybe David. But by and large, this was not an understood concept. And this is the relationship the disciples did come to enjoy when the event that John 20, 22 describes took place when Jesus met with them after his resurrection. John chapter 20 and verse 22 tells us this. This is after his resurrection. It says, and when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, receive the Holy Spirit. In that very moment, his disciples, who had clearly placed their faith in him, received his spirit within them, permanently sealed by him as he took up residence in each and every one of their lives. And then having given birth to them like this, giving them his spirit like this, Jesus went on to promise them one more relationship with the spirit, a relationship he spoke to them before about departing the earth after his physical resurrection as recorded in Luke chapter 24 and verse 49. Here's what Luke 24 and verse 49 says. Behold, I send the promise of my father upon you, but tarry in the city of Jerusalem until you are endued with power from on high. The the promise of the Father, which Jesus is speaking of here, was a clear reference to the Holy Spirit. And what Jesus is telling them is that shortly the Spirit that they already had with them 
and who is now dwelling in them would soon come upon them. The Greek preposition being the word epi, which literally means to come upon or to come over. An even better way of saying it would be to overflow. And that is exactly what Jesus is describing to them, a relationship with the Holy Spirit, whereby he would overflow them. Now turn with you will, if you will, to Acts chapter 1 and verse 8. Go to Acts chapter 1 and look at verse 8. Acts chapter 1 and verse 8. He says to them, but you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon, if you want to underline, underline upon you, and you shall be witnesses to me in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. And, and that outpouring, that overflowing, that upon experience, that upon relationship that he promised to them did take place on the day of Pentecost, just as we have recorded then in Acts chapter 2. You can skip down to Acts chapter 2 and verse 1. And it says in verse 1 there of Acts chapter 2, when the day of Pentecost had fully come, they were all with one accord in one place, and suddenly there came a sound from heaven as of a rushing mighty wind, and it filled the whole house where they were sitting. Then there appeared to them divided tongues as of fire, and one sat upon each of them, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Now again, keep in mind, prior to that day, the Spirit had been with them, and he had been in them. But on that day, he entered into a new relationship with them, whereby he came upon them, completely overflowing them with an empowerment that they had never known or even experienced in the same way before. I mean, just think about Peter. I mean, think about Peter before Pentecost and after th this relationship was established on the day of Pentecost, and, and you'll clearly see what happened through this new relationship. I mean, Peter, who had not long before this day come sheep, and he had denied Jesus, you know, he's sitting around the fire during Jesus's trial, and they're asking him, you, you were with him, and what does Peter say? I don't, I don't know the man. And again, yeah, you know, you were with him. Now, I don't know the man. Ask him again. You were with Jesus. Now, I, he curses. He now doesn't know him. He denies him. Three times Peter denies him. And then after doing this, he, he's found crying in an alley, knowing he betrayed Jesus, that he denied him. And even after Jesus' resurrection, where does Peter go? He goes back, tries to go back to his old life, to go back to fishing, right? No confidence, no confidence in his, in his walk with Christ, no confidence in any of this. Certainly not the Peter we're about to see. He goes back to fishing. Of course, Jesus confronts him again, confronts him on the beach. Peter, do you love me? Well, you know I like you, Lord. Peter, do you love me? Well, Lord, you know I like you. Peter, do you, do you like me? Yes, I like you, Lord. Then feed my sheep. Same Peter. Then he's found in the upper room. And, and I'm not saying that they weren't gathered waiting as Jesus had called them to, but there's a sense that, that there's a, a trepidation going on. There, there's a, 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 almost a fear. And it, though the word doesn't use that, and I want to be careful about saying that. But yes, there's this sense that they had kind of withdrawn. And here's Peter in that upper room with him. But then comes Pentecost. And then comes this upon relationship with the Spirit. And on this day, when the Spirit came upon him, Peter stands up and he preaches one of the most powerfully recorded messages in all of Scripture, a message so profound that 3,000 people are saved. 
This is because Peter was an eloquent speaker? No. It's because the Spirit was upon him in that moment. So here we see the three relationships that the Spirit seeks to have with us as Jesus clearly speaks of it. He tells us in his word, the with, the in, and the upon. But having looked at what Jesus said about these relationships, let's look now at what Jesus demonstrates for us in his own life personally. You see, not only does Jesus tell us about these relationships, but as with every spiritual truth, Jesus models it for us in his own life. Now think about this for a moment. Jesus, as the Son of God, as God himself, none of us can say that the Holy Spirit wasn't with Jesus. Of course he was with Jesus. And, and we know that Jesus, as Son of God, God in the flesh, that the Holy Spirit was in Jesus, literally dwelling in him from the moment of his birth, even before his birth, right? The Spirit was in Jesus. But now here on this day of his physical baptism, as recorded in the Gospels, we see the Spirit coming upon Jesus, just as the Spirit would come upon the disciples at Pentecost. And, and, and he's seen literally descending on him, just as the tongues of fire are seen upon the disciples at Pentecost, literally descending, alighting upon him, and confirming him and empowering him for the ministry he had before him. Thank you for joining us for another episode of Journey in the Word, a verse-by-verse teaching ministry of Calvary Chapel of the Cumberland Valley. If you would like to listen to more teachings or find out more information about us, go to www.journeyintheword.org. That's www.journeyintheword.org. Thanks again for listening. We hope you'll tune in for our next episode as we continue our Journey in the Word.